Hello, I'm Barbara Spring. I'm going to talk about my book, The Dynamic Great Lakes. In part one, I talked about Lake Superior, Lake Michigan, and Lake Huron. And today, I'm going to talk about Lake Erie and Lake Ontario and their connecting waters. As I say in my book, everything is connected to everything else. The air, the land, the waters, and the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes are all connected to each other. And what we do with the air, the water, the land, it all happens and we can see what's happening in these Great Lakes. If we take good care of them, their uh, ecosystems will maintain their integrity. Sometimes uh, mistakes that have been made in the past can be corrected. So we need to know how these lakes work, and that was my idea when I wrote The Dynamic Great Lakes. I wanted to show how these Great Lakes work and what we might do, because they're too valuable to destroy. I'm going to begin by talking about Lake Erie. In surface area, Lake Erie is the fourth largest of the Great Lakes, 9,906 square miles and the 12th largest in the world. In volume, it is 116 cubic miles, the smallest in water volume of the Great Lakes. It lies further south than the other Great Lakes, therefore its climate is warmer. It was the first Great Lake to be completely emerged when the last glacier began its slow retreat northward some 12,000 years ago. Because it is the shallowest of the five Great Lakes, its average depth is 62 feet, it is sometimes treacherous for boaters because of sudden squalls that whip the water. Erie is classified as a eutrophic lake. That means it's well-fed. The nutrients entering it result in high numbers of plankton and fish, and this is a good thing. Oh, just to show a little bit about the coastal wetlands, I'm going to read a section about some of the creatures that live there. A great blue heron wades along a coastal wetland and suddenly captures a frog in his long beak. When a boater approaches the long-legged heron too closely, it suddenly rises gracefully into the air and with its loud, clattering voice warns the other herons of an intruder. In the shallow water, a large school of perch swim around a pile of stones. Near the shore, a family of beavers has built a den out of tree branches. They have cut with their sharp chisel-like teeth. The marsh teems with young fish, reptiles, and small animals. For the great blue heron, it is a delicatessen stocked with all of his favorite foods. Marshes and coastal wetlands are important as breeding places for many types of plankton, crayfish, fish, and birds, for mammals such as the muskrat and beaver, and for water-loving animals such as frogs, snakes, and turtles. Many types of birds nest and feed in the wetlands, and during the springtime especially fill the air with their sounds. Ducks, herons, ospreys, and many types of smaller birds, such as the red-winged blackbird and yellow warbler, 
The sparrowhawk or kestrel lives in wetland areas. Wetlands produce much more wildlife and plants than any other type of Great Lakes habitat. Since wetlands are so important to the environment, laws have been passed to prevent people from filling in what they might mistakenly believe are useless areas. So far, the Great Lakes region has lost as much as two-thirds of its original wetlands. Blessed with lush coastal wetlands, Lake Erie supports both large human and wildlife populations. Well, an important part of Lake Erie is Lake St. Clair. It has the largest freshwater delta in the world, so I'm going to describe that. Lake Huron's clear turquoise water flows from its southernmost tip down through a seven-mile channel, the St. Clair River, then into hundreds of channels that make up the world's largest freshwater delta into heart-shaped Lake St. Clair, which has its outlet at the point at the heart of the Detroit River. The combined waters from the Upper Great Lakes, Superior, Michigan, and Huron flow downward into Lake Erie. Migratory birds such as the canvasback and redhead ducks and about 50% of North America's whistling swans use Lake St. Clair and its wetlands as a stopover on their migrations. Mayflies hatch in such great numbers that people living along Lake St. Clair must hose off the dead flies on their cars and houses. The Detroit River's strong current moves the jade green water swiftly into Lake Erie. The marshes along Lake St. Clair and its delta, Lake St. Clair and the Detroit River are 90 miles of productive habitat for wildlife between Lake Huron and Lake Erie. This is considered part of the Lake Erie ecosystem. Well, marshes are nature's sponge and water filter. They're essential to all of the Great Lakes ecosystem. The reason is they soak up excess runoff water like giant sponges, and they reduce flooding and erosion. They filter out pollutants. They help recharge underground water supplies, and they are nurseries for fish, birds, reptiles, and insects. So we need to keep these. They're very important. Only 25 miles from downtown Detroit, people with binoculars watch the spring migration of raptors, various species of hawks at Point Mouye State Game Area, a wetland known for its wildlife. Wild rice grows here. Muskrats and raccoons find the marsh a good habitat. Another famous wetland is Point Pele National Park on the Canadian side of Lake Erie, 51 miles from Windsor, Ontario. During spring and fall, more than 70 varieties of migrating birds use Point Pele's 2,500 acres of marshland and sand dunes as a stopover on a major flyway for bird migrations. Along the shorelines of Lake St. Clair, the western edge of Lake Erie as well as Lake here on Saginaw Bay, the prairie white-fringed orchids nod their clusters of white flowers in the breeze. Once common, these orchids are now an endangered species. 
Of over 2,000 plant species around the Great Lakes, more than 200 are threatened or endangered due to the loss of habitat. Plants are an important part of the Great Lakes ecology. Their roots hold the soil in place that otherwise would be washed or blown away. They enrich the soil, add to the beauty of the landscape, and the plant communities along the shores of the Great Lakes are distinct from all others on Earth. Well, Lake Erie has lost a lot of species of fish, and uh, this was due to overfishing, was due to pollution, the breakdown of the ecosystem, but it has come back somewhat. People insisted on voting bond issues, and industries cleaned up their act. So now we have a comeback. Some species have been lost forever, but some have made a comeback, and fishermen can now fish in Lake Erie and enjoy the warm water fishery. But then another problem started in uh, Lake Erie. This was due to shipping and ships that dumped their ballast water. And the zebra mussel came in. This was an import from the salt waters, from other parts of the world, from fresh water. Monroe, Michigan had to shut down its municipal water plant for three days when its intake pipes became coated with zebra mussels. In 1989, 30 tons of them were found on a two-and-a-half-mile stretch of pipe at the Ontario water plant. Navigation buoys have sunk under the weight of millions of zebra mussels. Now, the dominant species in Lake Michigan has become the quagga mussel, which is quite similar, came to the Great Lakes in the same way in the ballast water. The quagga mussels are deep water, living things that never should have reached the Great Lakes. Today we have 183 types of exotic species, that is, things that do not belong in the Great Lakes. Well, I'm going to talk about Lake Ontario, the last in the chain of Great Lakes. Lake Ontario is deep, 804 feet at its deepest point, and its average depth is 282 feet. Of the five Great Lakes, only Lake Superior is deeper. Although deep, it is the smallest Great Lake in surface area, but holds a greater volume of water than shallow Lake Erie. Unlike warm Lake Erie, Lake Superior holds a large proportion of cold bottom waters. On its way to Lake Ontario, the last in the flowing river of seas, water rushes down the Niagara River, making a spectacular drop over Niagara Falls before flowing into Lake Ontario, the easternmost of the five Great Lakes. The Lake Ontario Basin encompasses the incoming Niagara River, Niagara Falls, and numerous other lakes and streams that empty into the lake before the waters discharge into the St. Lawrence River. This is a popular lake for sailors, and it's a was one of the first places to become populated. It used to be that the waters held fish, such as the landlocked Atlantic salmon. 
But today the fabric of the ecosystem has been torn. After evolving for thousands of years and adapting to Lake Ontario's specific conditions, some species have disappeared, damaging the overall ecosystem. Some niches in the ecosystem are filled with less desirable species of plankton, insects, fish, birds, and plants. Smallmouth bass, pumpkin seed, and rock bass live around the shallow shoals and islands of the eastern basin of the lake, making their living by catching minnows, frogs, and insects. Carp and suckers have replaced some of these fishes since they are more tolerant of pollution. A niche is a place in the natural community where a living thing is adapted to the food chains and habitat. The place where fish lives and eats and spawns is its niche. When a niche is vacated by one species, another species may move in. Occupy the same space, eat the same food, and use the same places to spawn. Planted fish fill the niche once used by the native Atlantic salmon. So the streams were cleaned up and trees planted on the bank by both Canada and the United States. And in 1983, nearly a 100 years after the extinction of Lake Ontario's landlocked Atlantic salmon, the New York Department of Environmental Conservation planted a close relative of the native. This was the Atlantic salmon. So we are uh, doing things for the lakes to help them. Some things have been very difficult. It used to be that the American eel was used as a fish food. It was an important fish food, but the uh, bottom of the Lake Ontario and uh, the St. Lawrence River became too polluted. And uh, the American eel, which is eaten by the beluga whale, became a source of disease for the beautiful white beluga whale. So these are things we have to look at and and try to fix if we can. Well, you can read more about the Great Lakes and how they work. I have another chapter about how the lakes can cleanse themselves if we don't pollute them too much, what indicators of clean water are, and about the mixing and stratification of water. This shows the natural changes in the lakes. And about lake levels, that's a natural cycle. The lakes are down now. I have one part, 1,500 years of changing lake levels, so we have to be aware that lakes rise and fall as a natural cycle, but also be aware of what we might be doing The Great Lakes are 18 to 20 percent of the world's fresh surface water. We need to take care of them. They are so important. I have a chapter about sand dune cycles. We have some of the best sand dunes, and these were built over thousands of years. If we bulldoze them down, they're gone. We don't have another thousand years to grow some more of them. And the last chapter is about problems and possible solutions. And uh, so I, I leave people with the question, what can you do 
What can you do to use your knowledge, creativity, and common sense to keep the Great Lakes great? Can you think of ways to think globally and act locally? This is Barbara Spring, author of The Dynamic Great Lakes, available at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. You may order the book if it's not in the store. And be sure to contact your uh, local officials, government officials, and do what you can to save the Great Lakes.